You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello, and thank you for joining us for Catholic News. My name is Chris Mahalik. Source of our program is denvercatholic.org. But I'm a good person. Why go to confession? By Aaron Lambert. But I'm a good person. Or so goes one of a myriad of common excuses for why someone doesn't need to go to confession. Confessing our wrongdoings is antithetical to the human problem of pride. We like to keep our sins to ourselves, and we definitely don't like to admit when we're wrong. When a Catholic, lapsed or otherwise, is encouraged to go to confession, another common response like the aforementioned one may be, but I didn't kill anybody today. Why do I need to go to confession? Or, for a non-Catholic, there may be a hang-up on telling a priest one sense because I can just go straight to God. True as this may be, St. Paul tells us to confess our sins to one another, meaning they are not meant to be bottled up inside. They are meant to be expunged. The biblical reason for confessions are many, but even on a practical level, it makes sense that we would need to tell our sins to another human being every once in a while. For practicing Catholics, the Church requires a good expungement at least once a year, but she recommends going once a month. After all, this is where the Sacrament of Reconciliation gets its namesake. We must be reconciled to God for our wrongdoings against Him and against others. Of course, the beautiful thing about confession is that when we confess our sins to a priest, we are really telling them directly to Jesus. The Catechism says this about confession. Christ has willed that in her prayer and life and action, his whole church should be the sign and instrument of the forgiveness and reconciliation that he acquired for us at the price of his blood. But he entrusted the exercise of the power of absolution to the apostolic ministry, which he charged with the ministry of reconciliation. The apostle is sent out on behalf of Christ with God making his appeal through him and pleading, be reconciled to God. Think of the last time you got into an argument with a close friend or family member. Maybe you said something you didn't mean. Perhaps you acted a bit irrationally. In doing so, maybe you caused a rift in the relationship. In order to repair that relationship, a conversation needs to happen. You need to admit your wrongdoings. The other party needs to admit theirs. And you need to forgive one another. Forgiveness, however, requires mercy. This is essentially what happens between us and God in the confessional. We make things right with God. So, while it's true that you probably are a good person and that you, in fact, didn't manage to kill anybody today, that's not really the point of confession. Confession is how we tangibly receive forgiveness from the Lord for our transgressions. And trust me, we all need it. There is absolutely nothing we could do on our own to merit God's mercy, and we need it even for the tiniest of trespasses. And therein lies the ultimate purpose of confession. We don't deserve God's mercy, but He gives it to us anyways. No sin is too big for, or small for God. His grace is always there, ready to be freely given to us. 
What's stopping you from receiving it? You did it for me by Father Leo Elmazan of the National Eucharistic Revival. Female voice, no thank you. Male voice, muffled words I could not understand. Female voice, I should not. No, please, you also need to stay warm. Male voice, more muffled words that were unclear. Long pause. Female voice, sniffling. Thank you. Our Lord must have sent you to bring warmth to my heart, soul, and body. God bless you. I overheard this conversation through the closed doors of the Adoration Chapel, where just a few minutes before I had been praying alongside this man and woman quietly. This encounter happened during one of the worst storms we have had in that area and right in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. Because of all the restrictions, not many people went to pray at our parish's Adoration Chapel. That was why I was there, and it was also why I knew who the two people were who had been talking on the other side of the chapel door. We were all getting ready to leave. I was the one who had to stay behind to make sure the place was locked for the night. I did not know the woman. I had only seen her a couple of times. It was clear, however, that she had been under duress for a while. Her clothes were ragged and hung loosely from her frail frame. She had been crying intermittently during our time there, and when she finally got up to leave the chapel, she swayed a little. A charitable encounter. The man was Don Jose, a regular parishioner and an assiduous adorer of our Lord present in a sacrament. Don Jose was often misunderstood. As a parishioner once succinctly described it to me, he just does not look like he belongs here. What the person meant by that was that Don Jose looked unkempt and could be cantankerous at times, and yet there we were on that cold night. The lady was getting Don Jose's jacket, Don Jose was getting ever closer to our blessed Lord, and I was getting edified and convicted by his actions all at once. The lady and Don Jose left right after their brief interaction. As I walked to my car, warmly wrapped in my nice jacket, yet somehow feeling colder than before, I remembered Jesus' words from the Gospel of Matthew, For I was naked, and you clothed me. I had missed my chance. I had been so entranced by my own prayers that I failed to see the lady and to act as the Lord had commanded us to do. As I kept reflecting on the interaction I had witnessed, what stood out to me was not only Don Jose's physical act of taking his jacket off and giving it to the lady, but also the way in which he had clothed the lady, who looked dejected, alone, and forgotten, with his warm, compassionate care. The Good Samaritan, Don Jose's actions made me think of another passage, this time from the Gospel of Luke 10. 29:37, Like the injured man in the parable of the Good Samaritan, the lady lacked proper clothing, looked beaten and abandoned, and came across as half-dead. Don Jose, like the Good Samaritan, saw the lady, was filled with compassion, stopped, and took concrete action to help her. The following day and every day after, I would see Don Jose praying before the Blessed Sacrament, and I would feel compelled to do as he did. 
In other words, his interaction with the lady gifted me with a method, a rhythm, if you will. Now with this new rhythm, I go to pray before the Blessed Sacrament, and then I go out and see the naked, which includes not only those without clothing, but also those without friends, family, or meaningful human relationships. Then I allow my heart to be filled with compassion, and I stop to converse with them. Invariably, our conversation ends up giving me the opportunity to do something concrete to help them. And finally, I go back to the Adoration Chapel to report back to my Lord what I did and to make further commands from Him and to take further commands from Him. My intimate hope is to give the naked the same warm gift of compassion and charitable love that Don Jose gave to the lady that night. Works of Mercy Unfortunately, I never saw that lady again. Soon after the situation arose, I moved away from that parish, and soon after that, Don Jose passed away. Before I left, however, I had a chance to talk to Don Jose about his interaction with the lady, and I asked him what had compelled him to give her his jacket on that cold night. At first, Don Jose looked puzzled and mildly embarrassed. Then he told me, how could I go to pray before the Blessed Sacrament and then ignore what he said we must do? Then he smiled at me, and with a twinkle in his eye, he added, For I was naked, and you clothed me. Matthew 25, verse 36. Remember? The Biblical Roots of Confession by Daniel Campbell When it comes to the mercy of God, is there any greater encounter we have with that today, that in the confessional. In fact, St. Thomas Aquinas even writes that God's mercy expressed so profoundly in the forgiveness of sins is the greatest sign of His omnipotence. God's omnipotence is particularly shown in sparing and having mercy, because in this is it made manifest that God has supreme power, that He freely forgives sins. Aquinas also references St. Augustine, writing that for a just man to be made from a sinner is greater than to create heaven and earth. Creation is certainly a unique divine power to make all things from nothing. Yet to create all things from nothing still pales in comparison to God's work of transforming the sinner into the state of grace. What a beautiful gift from our Lord to be able to receive absolution for our sins and the help to amend our lives. While the sacrament of confession was instituted by Jesus, it doesn't mean that the concept is foreign to the Old Testament. To begin with, the refrain to repent is ever-present on the pages of the Old Testament. The need to turn away from sin and toward God, contrite for our past failings, and resolving to avoid them in the future is inescapable in the Old Testament, no more so than in the prophets. As we read in Ezekiel 18, verses 31 to 32, summing up the prophetic call, Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed against me, and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of any one, says the Lord. 
so turn and live. While the Israelites do not always heed the call of the likes of Ezekiel, there are incredible instances of contrition for sin expressed in the Old Testament. King David, for example, in the aftermath of his adulterous affair with Bathsheba, writes in Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O Lord, according to my steadfast love, according to my abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, the thee only, I have sinned, and done that which is evil in thy sight, so that thou art justified in thy sentence, and blameless in my judgment. Even public auricular confession of sins occurs in the Old Testament as well. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth, and with earth upon their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners, and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place, and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day. For another fourth of it they made confession and worshipped the, the Lord their God. Ezra 10 verses 1 to 3. Having said all of the above, still the greatest foreshadowing of confession in the Old Testament was the Levit Levitical sacrifices, be they non-expiatory, -exp spontaneous voluntary offerings simply to please God, or expiatory, offered as a result of crime, sin, ritual, impurity, etc., in atonement for sin, the Levitical sacrifices were all about expressing non-expiatory or restoring expiatory communion, communion with God. Holocaust burnt offerings expiatory were completely consumed by fire as a pure total gift to God. Cereal grain offerings non-expiatory until half of the offering consumed by fire and half eaten by the priest as a tribute to God. Peace while being offerings non-expiatory were animals split into parts and divided amongst the priests and the offerer to share in a celebratory and thanksgiving offerings for deliverance from some harm or evil. Sin purification offerings expiatory were offered for the restoration of ritual purity or inadvertent transgression and could be offered on behalf of a priest, the, the congregation, or an individual layperson. Lastly, were guilt reparation offerings, expiatory, made in reparation for guilt, the trespass of holy things, and included the offerer confessing sins to a priest and paying a 20% reparation fee to the sanctuary. However, regardless of the kind of sacrifice, a common imperfection remained. No matter the offering, the Old Testament sacrifices were not efficacious for the forgiveness of sins. That is, the Levitical sacrifices only went so far. They expressed repentance in the offerer and included an external act manifesting that. But no matter the contrition, no matter the sacrifice, no matter the purity of intention, 
The Old Testament did not contain the means of obtaining eternal life for crops, and the blood of animals cannot cleanse the conscience of a man and open the gates of heaven. To this we must turn to New Testament. John the Baptist, the forerunner to the Messiah, revolves his public ministry around the familiar refrain from the Old Testament, Repent. But unlike those calling for repentance in the Old Testament, John is succeeded by one who can efficaciously cause the forgiveness of sins that repentance longs for. Case in point, the forgiving and healing of the paralytic. The friends of a paralyzed man bring him to Christ to be healed, but rather than healing him physically, Christ first pronounces the man's sins forgiven and it's only when confronted by his opponents as to where he gets his authority to forgive sins that Christ heals the man's paralysis as the proof of his spiritual authority. The scribes and Pharisees balk at this, however. Who are you to say that this man's sins are forgiven, for only God can forgive sins? So they think to themselves, a correct statement, but one which misses the point. While they are correct in asserting that only God can forgive sins, they are incorrect in thinking that Jesus is a mere man and has therefore blasphemed for taking upon himself something that only God can do. For Jesus Christ is not a mere man, but God incarnate. In other words, Jesus works the physical healing in order to, prov to prove the spiritual power. Yes, he has the divine authority to forgive sins and just made the man walk to prove it. This is why he can also proclaim salvation to the good thief on the cross alongside him, and this is also why Jesus came can imbue the sacrament of confession with the grace of the forgiveness of sins, for unlike the blood of animals, his is the blood of a divine person become man, and is therefore infinitely meritorious. As St. Paul preaches in Acts 13 verses 38 and 39 let it be known to you therefore brethren that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and by him everyone that believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses what the Old Testament could not effect salvation is produced by Jesus Christ in John 20 Nine, verses 19-23, we read the following encounter of the apostles with the risen Lord. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If, if, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. As God had breathed into man at creation in the book of Genesis, so God once again breathes into man here in the upper room. But where the first breath of God brought physical life to man, this new breath of God brings spiritual life to man.
as Cornelius Lapide writes in his scripture commentary, speaking of this breathing upon the apostles, as if he would say, I first gave Adam his natural life by breathing on him, so by breathing on you do I give you that Holy Spirit which bestows on you supernatural and divine life. I, who first created men, am now their recreator and restorer. And now the apostles, being given the authority to forgive sins, can take this most beautiful gift in form of confession to the whole world for us to encounter the mercy of God in our own lives today. AWOL Doctors at the Catholic Field Hospital by George Weigel Pope Francis's image of the Church as a field hospital tending the wounded on today's social and cultural battlefields resonates with Catholics across the globe. The image evokes a church living the Lord's command in Matthew 25 to serve the least of his brethren and examples of that abound. The church tends to the wounds of those abandoned on the Verduns and Iwo Jimas of the sexual revolution. That's what Catholics do when they staff and, finally, and financially support crisis pregnancy centers whose primary clients are suffering women abandoned by irresponsible men. Project Rachel, a parish-based program that serves women and men suffering from post-abortion trauma, is a wonderful example of the church as field hospital. The church sends the wounds of those struggling to make it in a rapidly changing economy, offering both material assistance and training in the skills that will empower those left behind to enter the networks of production and exchange where wealth is created and distributed. The church tends to the wounds of those addicted to the poisons of the day, opioids and other drugs, cheap booze and cheaper online sex, and helps them discover the path to genuine freedom. And of course, the church tends to the deepest wounds of our brothers and sisters by offering them the healing medicine of the gospel and friendship with the Lord Jesus Christ, the divine physician. Cautions have been raised about the field hospital image because misused it can suggest that the church barely binds wounds rather than offering a cure for what caused those wounds in the first place. Those cautions were not misplaced. Now, however, an even more serious danger has arisen. Thanks to the use, some would say hijacking, of the worldwide synodal process to advance agendas incongruent with Catholic faith and practice, the pastoral challenge of grounding synodality in truth has moved into a genuine threat to the Church's unity and the proclamation of the Gospel in full. Or to adopt an image from a friend, the Catholic Church today is a field hospital and some of the triage doctors, rather than curing the wounded, are insisting that the hospital no longer tell people that landmines will kill you. The imagery shouldn't need much unpacking. The triage doctors are the bishops who have taken a solemn oath to teach what is spiritually life-giving and lead the people away from what is spiritually death-dealing, truths known by revelation and reason. Yet some bishops have suggested that the Church is and has been teaching falsely about human love, sexual identity, the dispositions necessary to receive Holy Communion worthily, or the imperative of being a Eucharistically coherent Church, a Church of sinners who seek absolution from grave sin before receiving the body and blood of the Lord. And that is analogous 
to triage doctors in a military field hospital neglecting the wounded or debating whether blindly stepping on a landmine, exposing yourself recklessly to incoming fire or refusing protective gear in front of you are bad for you. When Cardinal Mario Grech, Secretary General of the Senate of Bishops, said last September that he envisions a different church emerging from global synodal process, just what did he mean? How different? A church that is comfortable with a Unitarian idea of God? A church with five sacraments instead of seven? Exaggerations, you say? All right, how about a church that rejects the biblical idea of human person? Some bishops, including the great majority of the German Episcopate, may wish to be triage doctors debating the lethality of landmines. The living parts of the world church think that a grave abdication of a healer's responsibility to the wounded. Thank you for joining us. My name is Chris Mahalik. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.